0: Samuel chapter eleven. Let's read down at least to verse four. The Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. Now remember, Jabesh Gilead, what what we just read not too long ago about them. What what happened with that town? This is where uh, the, uh, the the, the Levite with his wife, with his concubine and all that. And kind of, someone said this was, this has been nicknamed, uh, Sodenberg, because the, the very similar things took place. And then on top of that, when, uh, they went to, they came to them and said, okay, look, help us, uh, fight the Benjamites for what they did. Uh, they said, no, we're no wanting part of it. And, uh, so, uh, it, what we're going to see here is what, what goes around comes around because they, because they refuse to fight against the enemies of God, they are going, they are suffering now. So anyway, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. So you already see compromise here, that they are not going to fight, and they, they'll just do whatever they have to do to survive. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, and Gibeah is excuse me, uh, I'm get this right. Gibeah is where the uh that Sodom like transaction took place. The Jabesh Gilead refused to support the rest of Israel to punish Gibeah, so it. They reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Let's read this a little bit further. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? And so they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Maybe seated. We'll just stop there. So, what happens then is that he gathers uh, with basically Israel comes with one as one man. It says and up uh, to help Saul to uh, attack um, Nahash and the Ammonites, and they, he divides the uh, people in the three groups and they rout them and they destroy them down to a man and Saul has a great victory and then when all this is taking place the uh, people say, someone someone says, look, and we didn't really get to this last week, but at the end of chapter uh, 10, when Saul was kind of being coronated by Samuel, the coronation uh, there were some who said, you know why do we have to make Saul king? You know, who is he? And they kind of Show show displeasure with what Samuel had already said. This is from God. And now, at at the end of this great victory, this is where Saul has kind of, his kingdom is now established because he's proven himself in this battle. Let's bring out anyone who said, you know, we shouldn't coordinate, that Saul shouldn't be king, and let's put him to death. And Saul says, oh wait just a minute, we've had a great victory today. Let's let's not do that. No one's going to die today. And so we, we, this is the last place, the last place in Scripture where Saul is going to be seeing a good life. So that's kind of what's going on here. Uh, before we get going too much further, let's remind ourselves a little bit about what we uh, saw last time. I think you'll click for the word God. First of all, God directs even the mundane minutiae of everyone's lives. There are, are no times that are not unimportant or out of His direct control. We're reminded that, that, God told member Samuel, these are the things that's going to happen tomorrow with Saul. And that's exactly what happened. And, and that's not a, we'll to talk about this a little bit later, a God moment. That's just always, oh, there, there are no moments that aren't God moments. And, and we'll with uh, that a little later. anointing and the, and the Spirit come from upon certain individuals in the Old Testament, that looked forward to its fulfillment under the New Covenant with Christ and all the saints. Uh, in other words, when we see these anointings of the Spirit coming and people to do service, it's not that they're being saved in some way, but I think it's, it's pointing to the promise of the New Covenant where we would be anointed with the Holy Spirit. And then there is a clear contrast between Saul, whose only good qualities were his physical attributes, and David, who had a heart for the Lord. And as we get into the life of David, we'll see those things more and more. So the last time we looked at Saul's anointing and, uh, and got involved with in the details of Saul and so forth, and we also saw in Samuel one who was more concerned with truth and God's glory than the festive celebrations of the people. I kind of just. Ended with that last time, where Saul stands up when people are celebrating uh, Saul's king, uh, being king, and he kind of put that buzzkill into it, you know, the Debbie Downer, uh, Bobby Buzzkill. Uh, you know, let's not forget what's really going on here. You're, you, you've gotten your king, but there's a dark side to this. It's the dark side of asking for a king. Your motivations have not been right, and so, it just reminds me as a pastor that I am not up here just to make sure that we're all always in celebration mode or, you know, religious mode, whatever that might be. I'm up here to proclaim the truth, whether we like to hear it or not. And that includes me, right? You, you know, Paul talks about, tell Timothy about a church that wants to have a itching ears and what a preacher who scratches it. I'm here to proclaim the word of God and let the chips fall where they may and so to me that was just a great passage when we see Samuel do those things of course the overall problem as he says is that they're, they're, they love self-rule uh, that's why they wanted a man and uh, not the Lord but uh, in chapter 11 it's interesting here for a couple of reasons one is that such it's such a good beginning for Saul, it's kind of like opening, remember when you were a kid and it was opening day of school and you had got new outfit. I remember one time I was walking, this was in the 70s, so I probably was in junior The style was to cut your pants and have jeans. And you know, you've got your clothes, you've got your, all your school supply, everything's new. And, you know, you have deluded yourself. You've been brainwashed somehow to think that this is going to be a good experience, and it all comes crashing down when the teacher gives you homework. Right? You know, oh no! Wait, like, this is school. This is a, you know whatever. And and so here you got saw the coordination. He's he's had this great victory, and everything looks good. The problem is, it's not going to last. It's much like school. Maybe maybe that's not the way you remember school. That's kind of how I remember school. Is that it, it was all good until you got in and got that that first uh, homework thing. He starts off well, and he he defeats a truly evil adversary as we saw with Nahash the Ammonite. He even tempers tempers, play on words there. Tempers tempers in verses twelve to fifteen. These people who were wanting to kill some who were hesitant at first, and he says, "No, we're not going to do that." And but, uh, like I said, though the problem is that this is the last time that Saul is going to really be seen in, in a good light. No matter what he does. From now on, even when there's some good things he does, there, there's going to be problems, sin involved in it. And, and, and look, see, see if you can find a place where Saul really is only seen in good light after this, uh, this thing. Let me know, because I don't think there is. But anyway, Um and now, we come to Nahash, and boy, this, we say, this is, what a cruel man. Well, because you gotta remember that this is the kind of barbaric times, often, Really up in some modern times, like that. Uh, someone said that Stalin, one quote from Stalin was, he said, to choose the victim, to prepare the blow with care, to satisfy an implacable vengeance, and then go to bed, there is nothing sweeter in the world. You know, there, there were few people any more cruel than Stalin, but you, you and, and so, there, it's hash he's cruel here, but it doesn't stand out as any more crueler than what has been going on since the fall. This is what sin does. But, you say, well, yeah, but he wants to gouge out the right eye. Well, that's cruel, no doubt about it, but it was calculated because it would, generally speaking, it would ruin their ability, these men, to be soldiers, to carry out any kind of, of raid on him or rebellion against him. So, there is method to advantage, you might say, but so that's uh, an interesting thing, but here we Saul, and I read some of it and I wonder if you, you noticed this you kind of had to read the whole chapter, maybe to pick it up Saul is being seen uh, as, as the first king as almost a super judge like, like now that he's seen as what the judges now have evolved into the, with these kings and, and and I say that because in verse six, um, he the Spirit comes upon him to do this work, which we saw with Samuel. Uh, in verse eleven, the, the, he cuts up that ox and sends it to uh, Israel. Well, what that happened, Remember, in the book of Judges as well, that Levi did that same thing. He divides the company, the army, up into three groups, which Gideon, uh, Gideon did that. So he's being described as doing things that were taking place during the times of the judges. and Someone pointed out that uh, he's being made to, to, to see the culmination of the judges. And he's the hero now uh, from a town that was very wicked, Gibeah. He's reversing perhaps the fortunes of the Benjamites who was almost annihilated. So he's being described as a super judge. And uh, so and I'm, there's not any big application to that. I, I think it's kind of interesting to see continuity of Scripture. so many times. But we notice here the real problem is with the people's heart. And this you have to kind of stop and, and read and, and think about what they're saying when they're calling for deliverance. They have grown tired of seeking the Lord's help because that's why they've asked for a king to start with. We notice that there's no mention of them going to the Lord asking for help. They go to Saul. They, they go to man. They, they send this to the 12, this oxen to pieces to the 12 tribes of Israel. Even though God has proven in himself time and time again, the unregenerate heart can't learn that lesson to trust in the Lord. It's the king of bust. not in God we trust, you might say. So there's a, there, it's a sin that we easily fall into. Even as Christians, we know that it's very difficult not to trust and go after the things that we can see and feel rather than things that we cannot. But of course that takes faith, in a sense the very definition of faith is to be able to believe and to see and to trust in the unseen right? Like Hebrews 11 tells us. So we, regardless of how much God shows himself mighty to save, it's the latest trial that we find it difficult to trust the Lord to help us so often. And we feel like we need to worry and fret and obsess and use every human means possible rather than just obey the Lord, trust the Lord, and go to sleep and get a good night's sleep and function as we should as a child of God. But, you know, I mean, that's the things we struggle with. But fortunately, because we're under the new covenant, When we do these things, we know that the Lord is going to take care of us and he's going to bring us through those things. Unfortunately with them, it's this constant pattern of rejecting the Lord that eventually leads to the end of their covenant. And of course, in one sense, they have asked for a human king. And so now you've got a problem because you could almost say it would almost be treacherous, it would would be an act of treason, To for the people to be crying out to God to save them when they just ask for a king to save them, for the king to be the one to take care of them like the other nations, right? So they put themselves in a predicament. so But that's kind of what goes on in chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, we have Samuel's farewell address as he formally hands over the uh, leadership of the nation to Saul, the king. And the first five verses are great because it gives us such a good example of how we ought to lead uh, a ministry, you might say, or how we deal with other people. Let's just read the first five verses. And Samuel said to all of Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me, and I have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before His anointed. Whose ox, whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said. You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is a witness against you, and his anointed is witness against you of this day that you have not found anything in my hand, and they said he is a witness. <clears throat> so uh, well that's just, that's a great testimony to have here as he's old and is ready to move on now. Uh, he says I want you to I have a good conscience. That I have been as faithful to you as I can be. It's not to say that obviously that he's perfect, but he can stand before the people and say, you guys know that I have treated you with integrity. And and they said, yes, you're right. So um, the first five verses here give us a good example of how we ought to be able to lead people that we have come in contact with, whether it's Church or family or friends or, or anybody, right? <clears throat> we can say that we have not used them, but we have been a blessing uh, to them in Christ. Nothing he did was motivated for personal gain, but how could he be faithful to the Lord? And I, I think again we saw that in the end of chapter 10, where he's not getting carried away with all the festivities. He's remembering what's going on. And so it would be a good exercise for us. To often examine our interaction with each other, and again, not just in the local church, but with whoever we're around. Are we being faithful? Are we being loving? Are we being truthful? You know, are are we being honest? Uh, Are we being cruel? Are we being unloving? Have we lied? Have we defrauded, stolen? You know, because this is unacceptable for a Christian. We want to make sure that. Nobody can say, you know, he really did not treat me as he professes to be, and we don't want to do that. So, we don't want to give them a reason to blame us and take advantage of them in any, any way. Certainly, you know, as a pastor, I, I want to hold myself accountable like that, but I think that's, that should be something we all would be uh, especially interested in. We don't want to have regrets at the end of, the, of our life. And, and, you know, we all look back and say, well, I would have been better not to do that. I had somebody not too long ago ask me, what's the biggest regret you have in your life? And he was a person that I know, but it wasn't a conversation I was going to have with this guy about deep, deep regrets and all that kind of stuff. But I started thinking about it. And I don't have any... I've done a lot of things that I wish I hadn't have done, but not a big regret because I've tried to be faithful to the Lord, and 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 another reason is because I know that I've, I, you know, you can only make the decisions at the times you think are right, and yeah, you can look back and say, "Boy, I wish I hadn't have done that," but at the end of the day, it was the Lord's will; it, He worked it out. And, you know, that was that was, you know, so you know, regret is a is a, a word you got to stop and think about. And, you know and i have regrets but not i don't think anything major um and that's of the lord too but if if we stop and then we're careful about how we interact with people we've all had big regrets. you know major things that we say boy you know i really blew that and it was my i know i and i deliberately did that you know and we don't want to to, to do that and uh, as a christian you know with that's been Regenerated has the word of God, we know better. We, we know that, uh, you know, right from wrong, and, and that should affect our decisions. So, he, he meets him at Gilgal, which is where uh, Joshua renewed the covenant with Israel back in his day. And I think we see an example of what we just said, where there's gotta be period, periodical times in our life where we confront ourselves with the Word of God. I mean, every time we meet together, there's that, right? Every time we open up the Word of God, we are to look at it, like Jane says, as you're looking in the mirror. This is God's Word. And when we learn something here, we then we are to see whether we are, uh, conforming ourselves to that. And so, uh, we, if it points out sin, well, then we all want to forsake that. I want to ask the Lord to help me do better. I, yeah, I, I see that. That's wrong. I see that in myself too much. And, and so I confront myself with the word of God. That's how the word of God purifies us, right? And so Samuel here kind of says this. He says, look, you guys are struggling in this area and you need to be careful uh, and, and remember the covenant um, or, or things are going to go bad. And so, he uh let me just read to you uh, when he's saying all this chapter um, twelve uh down in verse that's up, verse sixteen. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing the Lord will do before your your eyes. Is this not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see your wickedness is great that you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking yourselves for a king. And so there, the Lord sent thunder and rain, and 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 so it was a sign to the people. And of course, it was not a good thing because it was harvest time. And if you know anything about harvest, especially wheat, the last thing you want is wind and rain because it, you want it as dry as possible, and you want it standing up nice and tall. And so the Lord. You know sends this as a as punishment, but as a sign of his displeasure to the people. And he says, "What he what he's what God is doing is confronting them, making them, forcing them to consider seriously the word of God." Again, what we we want to impress upon ourselves today. And so, in verses uh, fourteen and fifteen, as we just read, we don't want to lose sight of all this, that God holds us responsible to consider how we're living, to consider what we're doing. Samuel has held himself accountable for the way he has led his people and pronounce a judgment on the people because they have not lived up to the promises of God, to the commands of God. And so my point here is that we cannot hide behind God's sovereignty when it comes to the Christian life. We are to pursue the Lord uh, in and with the Word of God. He has told us how we are to live and what pleases Him and what will give you a good life and a good reward. And it's our responsibility to, to pursue those things, to, to put forth an effort in those things. We're not hyper-Calvinists. We don't say, well, you know, let go and let go. Nah. Uh, you know, I can't do anything. If I do anything, it's me, it's human works, and that's bad. The Holy Spirit has got to put me where He wants me. I actually remember hearing a sermon. I've read books with people who, who believe that, that the Holy is just supposed to move us around. And, and, and of course, how that actually works is pretty nebulous. But they take away the human responsibility. And I imagine sometimes it's easy. You know, I know it is. To, to get lazy and to, to think that, well, you know, God's going to you know, take care of all this. And, and that he will work these things out. But it's God that works in us to will and to do. If God's work, if the Holy Spirit's working in you, you have a desire to do right, to serve the Lord, to do something for Him, to learn right, to be conformed. If, if, if your desire is to say, well look, I'm just, I'm, I'm gonna enjoy life. I'm here to enjoy life. Look at all the wonderful things God has created. So I'm just gonna enjoy life and thank God for that. I don't know if that's the Holy Spirit. That sounds a lot like the flesh. That I, I'm, I'm just here to, uh, not to pursue the Lord, but just just to have a good time. And I, I remember the first time this was ever really impressed upon me, I was painting, my dad and I, my dad kind of painted houses during the summer, this taught in uh, school. And a friend of mine, like one of my best friends, me and him were helping him that summer, we were in college. And, uh, we were painting, I remember him saying, well, you know, I feel like God wants us to be happy. He's given us all these wonderful things in life, and, and I and I and I think He wants us to, to be happy, to, to pursue these things, to enjoy this world. Well, he eventually became a homosexual. I mean, I guess you could say become. I probably, maybe, already was, but he embraced that lifestyle, which is no surprise because then you 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 quit thinking as a Christian, which he had professed to be. And now you're thinking about, well, I'm God. I'll just decide what uh, I should do. So I wasn't surprised at the end of the day. And we want to be very careful um, that we have a, a, a responsibility to serve the Lord. And He creates that in us. Remember in Romans 12, 2, we're told to be transformed, not to, how does not say, uh, let God transform there's an element, maybe a few to that, but he also says, Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is a command and a duty for us to do, right? God, Paul never says that you will be sanctified, God will see to it, you don't have to worry about it. No, not at all. So the simple point is that God does indeed transform us by his power, but he does it by enabling, enabling us to love and pursue him so if you're not actually engaged actively engaged in growing the Lord then I would say you're not growing in the Lord God isn't worshipping himself in us we are to do it it's something that must arise from our hearts we never need to be careful about never to lose that point that you know, I was dealing with somebody originally had the idea that well I didn't make a decision for Christ I didn't Believe the Lord gave me belief. uh, Wait just a minute. We you're saved through faith. Yeah, it's God's faith. No, it's not God's faith. It's your faith. God gives you the ability to exercise faith. And and I have, I, I at least you know on one hand the people that I've dealt with through the years. Who think that they are, uh, guarding the sovereignty of God, as if he needs that, uh, by suggesting that we aren't saved through our faith, we're saved through Jesus' faith. Like Jesus pulls it out of his pocket and gives us his faith or something. No, I mean, it, it, that the problem with that is that it, it very easily can drop you off into hyper-Calvinism, where I don't do anything. God's got to do it all. And that just led to all sorts of problems. So I guess we're getting a little bit out of first Samuel here, but you know, those things are things that, you know, do, have we not, how many times have we seen in the Old Testament already the Lord, either directly or through his prophet, telling the people of their responsibility to obey him and serve him, and how good things will be if you'll just do it, right? It's over and over again. And it doesn't change in a new covenant. It's just that now we have a heart to do it. But, but we're created to pursue the Lord and to find satisfaction in knowing Him. So, he sends this obstacle lesson of the storm to remind them that they need to stop to consider these things. And you know, we don't have a prophet to explain to us all the acts of God and to interpret them for us necessarily, right? I mean, we have the Word of God now to do that. You know, but we don't have prophets like like they did to say, okay, this is the, this is what's going on. This is what God's going to do, and this is what it means. We have the account of those things so that we can understand these, you know, on our own to some degree. You know, and of course, again we have teachers and, and each other to help. But a wise saint will keep in mind that God doesn't always cause lightning to strike when we've done wrongly and teach us a lesson like that. Just because things seem, seem, seem to be going well doesn't mean that we can coast and assume that we have been behaving ourselves. And we've talked about this before. That with Israel, it was physical calamity, God was Displeased with you, physical blessings meant that God was pleased with you. You yes, know, we simplified it. And it is that, but of course, that they lived under a legal system. And, and that's legalism. when we start judging our relationship with God, with how things are going on in our life, there's, there's not a quicker way to discouragement and ruin than, than living like that. It's, delu- it's delusional, as well as legalistic, and we've talked a little bit about that already. In fact, I would think that it is far wiser to not let outward circumstances and experience guide you as your spiritual, to, as to what your spiritual condition is, but instead the Word of God. That, that again, that, as James says, the Word of God is a mirror that exposes who I am and what's going on. Circumstances and experiences can be so misinterpreted because we all often know what the Lord is doing. I mean, let me give you some examples. Should Bill Gates assume that he's uh, in good standing with the Lord? He's an extremely wealthy man, right? Should, should, should he? Should, is there anything about Bill Gates' experience in life that he should take as an indication of how well he's doing with the Lord? No, it would be, be ridiculous. How about the local pastor who has a large congregation and comfortable, a comfortable salary, he, but he denies the authority of Scripture and the virgin birth and the deity of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ? Should he feel good about himself? Well, we don't know. Well, let's let's go on to now to our situation. Should I assume that because I... By the grace of God, do take the Bible as the inspired Word of God, and believe all that it says, and honestly believe the truth as, as I understand it. That I, that I don't deny the truth. Um, while many are denying these things around us, I know I have, as best I can, remain faithful these things. Does that mean that? Well, I don't really have any serious sins in my life. I don't need to worry about anything because I. Have been. I haven't fallen into these other sins. No. In, in other words, we're we're all sinners. And, and there's never a time where we could be comfortable in our sin. But the point is that only living in light of the Word of God is the safe thing. To constantly examine our hearts, regardless of how well our lives are going, uh, we so easily can fall into that tra- trap of thinking that well. Things are going well, so I, I should, I think I'm doing well, doing okay. Or when calamity hits as well, God's, uh, I've done something. Isn't that what Job, his friends kept telling Job? You have, you've done something, otherwise this wouldn't happen to you. And even though you have a whole book out uh, there telling us that that's not how to think, we, we do it all the time. And again, the health of wealth gospel, well, they, they have just jettisoned the book of Job out of, out of the Bible, I guess. So be careful about using experience to interpret life and to interpret certainly the Word of God. Now having said all that, let me turn right around and make a 180 and say that we should not ignore circumstances that God brings into our lives, but to judge them according to the Bible. Because sometimes the Lord does chasten us, and sometimes the Lord does bring scary things, difficult things into our life, and sometimes just to point out things that we're doing wrong. I mean, so, I'm not saying that you can't ever, but, you know, but, in other words, if we're faithful, we, if, if if something happens, perhaps, I don't know, an example, you know, perhaps your, your, your marriage just hit a rough spot. Well, there's nothing wrong with examining, you know, what kind of spouses I've been, have I been? What what has led to this? Is there some sin in our life that's led to this? Right? <clears throat> to examine those things, it, you know, you, your child has gone off the rails, perhaps, you know. Well, do I bear some responsibility here? That's that's all well and good, but at the same time, to remember that these things never come merely for that. <clears throat> like people who start smelling an unpleasant odor in the kitchen, you know, well, you keep looking, well, something's wrong. you know, And they eventually find, you know, maybe a bloated can of sauerkraut or something. The smell's an indication that there's a problem. And so, you know, that can happen. And, and don't be, don't just ignore things that are going on in your life, but interpret it from the Word of God. Hell is one way God gets our attention. And sometimes he sends things into our lives to force us to meditate on his word. To force us to not be distracted by this world, but to start concentrating on what is the Lord trying to do in my life here? What's going on? Not just get caught up in in having a good time in life. Um, I know i got to close here, but Colossians 3, 4, When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, it's a motivation to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So, there is always to be thinking about what's going on and making sure that we are focused as that particular verse tells us to. In Romans 11, 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And there's warning passages. It isn't that we're fearing our losing our salvation, but fear that we will be shown to be a false professor because we really haven't uh, pursued the Lord. We, there, there's really not been any change in our life. So we need to get the habit, both when good and difficult things happen, to let them cause us to think about where we are in the moment. But in either case, you've got to be careful about assuming anything. Judge everything by the word of God. So let me just close and write this down. This where um, like one instance, and I'm not saying this is, you shouldn't say this, it's a bad phrase, but I think when I, when I consider where I often hear this something just to think about. Uh, you hear people say, Well, uh, you know, that some they've had an experience where maybe they felt the presence of God. Something happened, some coincidence happened, and God worked out answering prayer or you know, and all that. And he said, Well I had a God moment. And I, I don't know, I've, I've never been particularly thrilled with that phrase. Um I'm not saying that again. There aren't things that happen in life where we say, "Boy, that, that was the Lord right there." It, it, you know, you, you see it. You, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that doesn't happen. The problem that I at least want you to think about is that there is, is nothing but God moment. Every moment is a God moment because, as like you saw last week, nothing in your life that happens is is apart from God doing it. So even when you have a bad day where it seems like everything's gone wrong, you know, bills start coming in, things start breaking down. It's like, I can't this I shouldn't have got up this morning. That's a God moment because that the Lord sent that. Not, not to ruin you, not, to, not because it's mean, but He wants you to shine forth by His grace. Not just when God answers prayers and works things out in a wonderful way, and he does that too. It's all a God moment. So, I've never been thrilled with that, because it's almost like, well, God moments are only when God answers prayers and does wonderful things. Well, I'm sorry, but no. Everything is, we are to be thankful in everything. Right? We are to be full of the Holy Spirit and enjoy the Lord, even in the dark times. They're God moments too. So, again, I'm not saying don't use that terminology, but make sure we understand what's going on in life, and we don't get too caught up in that. And, and maybe you say, well, yours means if I am, I am. I'm sorry, but sometimes I see what's going on, and, and I'm not sure if it's a good thing. But anyway, we'll, we'll stop there. Any questions or comments? And Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the accounts and your word, and the things that we see, the interaction that you have with your people, so that we, Lord, are without excuse, and we Know what pleases you, what our duty is. And Lord always help us to remember that, that the commandments of God are not grievous, but they are given to us for our good. Um, that we if we really believe the Bible, we, we know that when we are faithful to you, that we will be living a life that is meant as it should be lived, um, we will have the joy and peace that only comes in knowing Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. So Thank you that you have loved us and how you provide for us. We pray in Jesus' name.